Escape from Plan A. Hey everybody, welcome to a special episode of Escape from Plan A. I am co-hosting today, uh, this is Diana, and this is the first episode where we're going to co-host. So my special co-host is Nia, who you've heard from before. Hi, good to be back. I'm Nia, my pronouns are she, her, hers, or they, them, theirs. It's a pleasure to be joining and co-hosting with you, Diana. Awesome. And uh, who are our special guests today? We've got two awesome, amazing folks from Black Zebra Productions. I don't know if you know our listeners know of their work, but they have been doing amazing work in California, in Sacramento, but also nationwide, boots on the ground, uh, reporting the uprisings that's been going on all over the United States. They've been in Portland. They've been in Sacramento, Washington, D.C., and so many other cities where they are just like recording and documenting the movement for collective liberation. Yeah, why don't you introduce yourselves? Oh my gosh, thank you so much for that really warm introduction, Nia. Um, my name is Kinsocia Zingapan. I'm the founder and the artist Black Zebra, and this is my husband. Hello, this is Joffrey Zingapan. Um also part of Black Zebra. I'm an artist as well. I'm Bangladesh, as well as African-American. I am. I was born and raised in the Philippines and uh, moved here in America back in 2004. And so background is I'm a hip-hop choreographer or a dancer. I'm just an artist in general and wanted to really experience how life works. And, <laughs> you know, in this revolutionary time, Everything is just transitioning now to, you know, liberating Black lives. Yeah, I think for the liberation of Black lives comes the liberation of all lives is what we've learned in our studies really around. Um, but yeah, we've been covering, I mean, there's so many different names attached to it. We, I guess we can use revolution, um, but we've been covering it since the beginning and even more so just issues um, and trying to amplify voices within the community and trying to really show and document what's going on within our communities. Um, we just found out it was more and more important as we were seeing, as we were in the streets along with other mainstream media and just seeing the narratives that were coming out um, from them, their engine and then also being in the streets and not understanding how it could get to that point. Um, so we just really saw a really important role to play in just documenting, um, unbiasedly documenting what was going on so people could really take a look into the streets themselves. Because there was lots of various reasons. I mean, we have a pandemic that's going on, um, as well as different public health orders throughout the nation that's going on that keeps people from being in the streets. So um, yeah, we've just been trying to steady document what's going on and just show um, the severity of it, show the expansiveness of it. So Black Zebra Productions, you, uh, you're called an artistic community of storytellers. So do you see yourselves as artists more? And what's the difference between 
what you do and say journalism or a photojournalism? Yeah, that's definitely been a question I've been trying to answer and ask myself a lot lately um, because Black Zebra is actually my artist's name. So it's me as a Black woman in America trying to show the world through my eyes and through my experiences. It is an art. Um, It's video production and video editing. And I just found different ways that I can use that artistic skill that I believe I have in different ways to affect change or show awareness or amplify voices or whatever the case may be within different communities. That has always been what it has always been. And I've just thrown a bunch of different things underneath the Black Zebra umbrella. Um, But recently with the uprising and the revolution, um, we were given press passes from the Sacramento Bee, and we were also given, you know, the name press and journalists. We, we go about it two different ways. We go about it unbiasedly, you know, through the live streams, unbiasedly documenting things and just being present so people can see what's going on and just offer. You see what's there and you can formulate your own opinions from that. But on the other side, we do come from an artistically So we do have edited videos or different series where we tackle different um, issues or tackling, amplifying voices within the community. And we do that in an artistic direction. So we're really trying to like figure out exactly what it is because a lot of people have been putting so many different labels on us and so many different, putting us in so many different buckets. You know, I've just been trying to figure out how we feel about that and how to go about it, but then still remaining true to what it is we started back in 2016 Mm -hmm. of just really wanting to show the world through our eyes and work with people, connect, collaborate, show culture, show what's going on. So it's just been trying to answer that question still, I guess. Yeah. There's so much to encapsulate um, the work and the bulk of everything that you do. When you say like unbiased in your live feeds, right? Like how, how do you come about that? Like how do you create that unbiased frame? Because I mean, like I think with journalism, you try to be as unbiased as possible. And we know that like in the midst of our political landscape right now, that like most journalism is not unbiased at all. In fact, many of them has like turned into propaganda, right? So like, can you talk about that unbiasedness within your work. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different ways we come by it, but then also I think like you're saying the work itself lends to some bias and everyone in every media situation is choosing what they show on their screen. So I think in that case for us, that's why I think it's artistic for us. You know, I'm choosing what art, what I'm artistically showing within my viewfinder. So I, I think you have to like recognize that and be transparent and say that. And that's why we, we do. We're like, you know, we are coming at this artistically and we are trying to come at it as a journalist or documenting things. Cause we see, you know, so it, it, it is like a tug and a pull. Um, but for us, I think the ways that, we're trying to be different in the ways that we're trying to just be sincere um, is we don't have a reporter. We're really just going out and just showing what's going on in the community. We're not going, I mean, there are situations where we may go up to someone and ask a question to clarify things, but we're really just showing what's going on in the streets, showing what's going on in your neighborhood and your community and just leaving it up for you as a viewer to narrate in your head what you see and what's going on. I think mainstream media, you, they cut and they pace. 
they have a reporter, they have, you know, a formula. And then it's um, only a two or three minute segment. And yeah. versus the live stream we have, which gives you at least hours uh, in the streets. Yeah. So that there's no, they don't create a narrative of what's going on. You see exactly for what it is. Yeah. So there's just a lot of different ways that we're just really, we put on the headset of focusing of just documenting what's going on in the community, amplifying the voices that are out there, amplifying the experiences and the community. Yeah. That's really the headset that we have when we're out there on the streets. Yeah. Um, especially with what's going on in Sacramento, right? That like in May when George Floyd was killed, Ahmaud Aubrey and Tony McDade and so many others, right? When that all was happening within that week, I remember that people were coming out in the droves And I remember that first action that happened in South Sac by the police station, right? Yeah. The following days after that, and then the weeks after that, and and so on, that like more and more people were starting to show up and show out. Can you talk about that time period, what it was like for you to document that when the military came in after just from that start, I mean, I would say for Sacramento, that was pretty much the start of the uprising here. That was definitely a very intense and crazy day. And then it just completely escalated every day from that to armed National Guards, armed not with impact munitions, but live ammunitions. And I've lived in Sacramento, born and raised here all my life. And that's something that's not a scene I've ever seen here. What's the difference between impact and live ammunition? So live ammunitions are like live bullets that enter your body and, you know, kill people. And then the impact ammunitions are things like rubber bullets, CS gas, different ammunitions that are supposed to deter crowds is what it's called. But they're, they're not live rounds. And mind you, those impacts, those ammunition that the SAC PD was using... Um, and even sheriff, right? Like during the uprisings, it still did a number and hurt people drastically. I think a couple of people lost their eye during that week. They're supposed to just aim down or there's a specific place that they were supposed to aim, but they were shooting towards um, people's heads. Some specialists in Portland, we were going down there studying what was going on with the feds in Portland because they were also using the impact ammunitions. And the way that the impact munitions are supposed to be used, they're supposed to be at first used to bounce off the ground. They're supposed to be shot at the ground and then to bounce onto people. They're not supposed to be shot directly at people and they're not supposed to be shot above the waist up. Um, But all we were seeing in Sacramento were countless and countless, even from legal observers, um, from press. We were I was even shot for the first time in my life. We were seeing everyone was from the waist up. Yeah. Even at the Capitol itself, I think it was like the Saturday of the uprising that there were. 50 police officers, law enforcement, blocking the Capitol, a couple of hundreds of people just like gathered outside in protest. And they had their tanks there. Yeah, it was a pretty heavy and steady 
I think the CHP was there at that time holding things down. Yeah, it was it was mm-hmm. quite intense. And then you saw these huge military tanks um, driving into the city. We see them on a city property. Um, you know, federal really f- just too. covering up the federal buildings um, is where wh- where they were stationed and concerned of. Like, do you have help when you're out there? Are you by yourself? You know, like, what is the team like if you do have a team that helps you out there? What recording is like when you're out there? I know that when the National Guard was there with the live ammunition, like, that was just a very dangerous moment for you to be reporting. And so many people in the community were praying for you to just be safe. And, like, can you also talk about when they tried to detain you? Yeah, of course. So at at first, it was just me and Jeff. Him and I have been doing this work together by ourselves since 2016. So at first it was just him and we were just consistently going out there um, every day. And yeah, when it escalated to the live ammunitions, I mean, I don't know. We, I guess we're just a little crazy. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm just now first time thinking like, yeah, that probably wasn't the safest. Thing it wasn't the safest. Um, but I think we were really just unselfish and we were looking out for our community members. Yeah. And we were, we were just driving around through streets of downtown, checking and see if there's any officers that are pulling or arresting or detaining any community members. And we would, we just want to be there, you know, to document it, to make sure that, you know, it happened because people would just create narrate that it didn't happen. So that was like, I think one of my goals. Yeah. And then experiencing with uh, the military people coming in there, it was weird because at the beginning, you know, it was eerie feeling knowing that they're there in the first place. But when days goes by, if they started, I think, getting bored, being deployed in yeah, that space. Yeah, you can tell that they didn't want to be yeah. there. I mean, the National Guards are like our doctors, our teachers, our everyday people from the community. Yeah. I think that go out like once a month or... Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so they, I mean, are recognized based on their behaviors. Like they are deployed, I agree, but it looks like they're not really interested on making any conflicts over there. Or even wanting to be there. It was just like a really weird and confusing situation all around. But at the end of it, they did have live ammunition, oh, yeah. rifles attached to their chest and Ready. tanks. So it was it's hard to have that empathy with them or hard yeah. to be able to relate. Cause we're, we're not on the same page when you have a, a live ammunition rifle and tanks. Yeah. When we took this information about the say two different places, like when I, when we were in Portland, we were telling people how things were going down in our hometown and we were telling them how the police were aiming for like heads and eyes were shot out and people had surgeries on their faces. The, the brutality that was going on in Sacramento, even the people in Portland were in disbelief at that because when we went to Portland, my feet were getting, I mean, we were still getting shot. I mean, things were bad in Portland, <laughs> but we were getting shot below the belt. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the brutality and just, you know, the things that went along and the things that happened out in Sacramento were definitely something that when we went around the world to tell people about or to share different experiences about um, was something that was shocking to them as well. You know, I used to live in Portland and that is amazing what they're doing with the protesters and anyways, um, resisting that state sanctioned violence constantly for like over a hundred days now. But like in Sacramento, specifically the capital of California, that like, we are the fifth largest 
economy in the world. So I can see why the resistance is deeper and like why they would bring in, uh, bring out all of the artillery to maintain order and control here. Yeah, I definitely think it's that as well. Um, I think we're the eighth largest in the world. And I think that has a lot to do with just a lot of our city and county and state sanctioned violence that's happening here to the most impacted of people. You know, each community was different. And then also Portland is very unique in itself because there we were dealing with not only local police uh, or Leo's law enforcement. Um, we we're also dealing with federal. They had federal um a task force from like um, ATF, ICE, DHS, um, different federal officers created a task force and brought them into Portland. And so the things that we were seeing out there were just crazy. Um, It honestly was like a war scene. Um, It was pretty intense. The Patriot prayers and alt-right kids and the proud boys you know i've lived in portland for nearly five years and the tension like you know was already strong and virulent when i left in 2016 right so i i can't imagine how tense it is now with the political climate that we're in so like you not only had to deal with all of those law enforcements but like can you talk about the white supremacists that you had to deal with out there Yeah. So at first, when we first got out there, that wasn't even an issue. It was really just the feds. Um, So it was just like a constant war for about a month and a half to two months of just the feds. And then once the feds decided to pull back, almost immediately, the new thing that the community had to deal with was the white supremacists. Mm -hmm. That's when they rolled into town and started having their rallies where pretty much in replacement of where the feds were. You know, it was very concerning, the force that came with it. I mean, it, it was like actual fighting, mace, guns, the the Proud Boys. I'm not sure what the name, the actual names of them are, but there were people on that side who brought actual guns mm-hmm. um, and guns. shields with like, what was it? Nails pointing out, like very yes. dangerous items. And we were even following them back to their cars and they had pulled out rifles and pistols and stuff. So it was just like... Very intense, very chaotic at that point. I think that was like the first time that they had came into town. And then at that point, the rules of the street had changed. Like yep. everyone was in um, b- ballistic gear. You know, you just weren't able yes, to be mass. on the street without it. But then, you know, it was during the day, the city was fighting white supremacists and the different groups that extremist groups that were coming into town. And then at night, consistently, we're dealing with the federal agents and local police. So it was just an all day um, from everywhere attack, you know? Yeah. And, but what was really cool to see is just the resilience of the community. They kicked butt. They kicked <laughs> they butt. Kept like, going. They They're kept going there. every day. They're going for day 200. Yeah. yeah it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm so proud of the organizing that they have done there. A lot of like the uh, solidarity and the unison that they move is, uh, you know, definitely have to clap for my siblings and comrades and and whatnot in Portland, Oregon. (laughs) How is that different, like, with the white supremacists and the groups of people that, like, are over there as opposed to here in Sacramento? Oh, well, it's a lot more extreme, I would say, in Portland. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very more intense. I mean, it's 
we were just in Roseville filming and this guy brought a huge like machete knife yeah. to a protester with has, like 14, 15 year old high schoolers. Yep, it was like a Trump and Pence engraved knife. Engraved it knife, was yeah. pretty intense <laughs> to like, see in Roseville and it was literally just like 10 children who just wanted to go out there and demonstrate. So it was unfortunate. So like those are, you know, that's big. Um, but the things that we were seeing in Portland were way more intense. I mean like groves and groups for a minute out there it's been emboldened for a minute out there and that tension has been there for quite some time out there just the intensity of like the weapons that we were seeing in portland that these extremist groups are bringing what is it the bear uh bear maze maze. i mean they were i'm not sure if they understand that bear maze is not for breeze The way that mace flies in the air when they're in town is it's yeah you just have to have the right equipment yeah yeah i mean like it's been building over there in portland for years now i don't know if you remember like i think it was in 2016 or something when they had that patriot prayer white supremacist dude on the the max train which is their you know public transit who stabbed two folks um, slit the throat of one person over a fight. And that was because the the white supremacist was trying to attack Muslim young girls on the train. And these two guys stepped in to help, or three guys stepped in to help, and, and the white supremacist killed two of them. Do you remember that? Gosh, no, I did not. That is insane to hear. And that happened in like, like broad daylight, like on the train. Wow. Yeah, like that tension. I mean, like, you know, Portland has always been a white supremacist state. It started out as a a state that, like, Confederates moved to because they didn't want to see freed enslaved people in their community. So they started a white utopia out there. Wow. And I only found out about this while living in Portland, Oregon. I knew that it was a very white state, but a lot of the tension that, like, was building and, and... and growing a lot of those white supremacists come from outside of Portland proper, such as Vancouver, Washington, like Beaverton, Hillsboro, all of those, you know, little small pockets of white utopias, as, as you would call it, or as they call it. Um, so, and it's an open carry state. So that is like the perfect environment for all of this violence that is happening. But I think that the feds are there and they're very, um, they're definitely there to make themselves known because it's the testing ground for how fascism could come through. You're exactly right on the testing ground. Um, what I was seeing, because I was out there for about two, two and a half months, I think it was out there the longest. And I have been out there to the stages of just the PV the feds, then the PV, then the white supremacists and the PV. And, you know, what I was seeing when the feds came out there every night, it was like, they're running different drills every night. They're running different tactics, using different ammunitions. Mm-hmm. I mean, every week the bullets, cause we were gathering evidence. We were looking, you know, showing our viewers like the, the ammunitions that were left behind after an hour of shots and, and gassing. And we would see that change every single day. They didn't run the same drill every day. So it really was a testing ground because shortly after they decided to be able to pick up and leave Portland, I mean, all the politics that came around that, 
um, is a whole nother topic. But after they shortly left, they went and did, what was it? Operation Legend. And they were in Louisville, Chicago, or Oakland. So it seemed as though they were in Portland, ran all these drills, did all these things, tested to see how it worked, and then ran it to other cities. Mm -hmm. Um, Not only that, we went to Kenosha, Wisconsin, when things went out. Um, We saw the same exact fence, the same exact fence, the same exact tactics. So we then went and followed the feds and saw them run all these tactics that we ran, I guess, together in Portland to go off into these other places around the nation and then see seeing them carry out those drills that we saw them practicing in Portland was just mind blowing. Yeah. Mind blowing. And the crazy part is we also caught federal agents swooping and detaining two people while we were yeah. at Kenosha and yeah. we- unmarked agents just grabbing people off the streets. That's something that we caught. Um another thing, there was a huge huge judicial struggle that was happening in Oregon. Um, Legal observers and press had filed this huge lawsuit against the federal agents. Um, And there was other lawsuits against federal agents to be able to um, have to identify themselves and have to show probable cause when arresting. And the judge said that they did not have to identify themselves. And the judge said they did not have to have probable cause when arresting people. So that literally made secret police in the streets Right there, just off that judgment. So like, what is the basic things that police officers have to do? They have to identify themselves as police officers and they have to have probable cause in order to arrest people. And a judge just took that off the table completely. Can we go back? How, like, how is that legal? Like, how, how is, is that being contested right now? I believe the ACLU is contesting it. But as it stands, mm-hmm. the, there are officers out there who are not... Who are getting away with any police brutalities. Or not only that, they're not identifying themselves and they're just taking people off the street. Yep. Without probable cause. Who is this judge? Like, what district was this? And what the, like, what the fuck happened that the legal system was not there to, to protect people from the state? It's always pushing that line closer and closer to lose all of our rights. That ruling is fucking huge. Like, wh- like, how how has nobody covered this? <laughs> like, th- this is insane. Yeah, I believe it was the ACLU Oregon. Yes. That filed it. They have a couple of uh-huh. different lawsuits. One of the ones that they were able to win, which was great to us, because like I said, when we first got there, press, including my team, like I had um, t- a team member get shot. Yeah, pushed. I had a team member get uh, pushed into a tree by a federal agent. I had a team member get pushed on the ground by a federal agent, drugged into tear gas. They beat up his camera and then pushed him out of it. I've been shot. We have strobe lights, all types of stuff. Mm-hmm. Bear um, mace. Yeah, I got. Oh yeah, got we've been maced. maced. Yep. Oh yeah, that did happen. I completely tried to put that on my mind, but we've been maced straight in the mm-hmm. face down my throat from like point blank range these are well all just in portland these are <laughs> those, all things, portland. those are all just a matter span in portland yep um but the aclu did do a lawsuit with the legal observers in the press and they were they won that and so what happens is press is now they were dispersing them and saying that they legally were able to disperse them and legally arresting people shooting them and all that stuff so the aclu did win that one and when that happened we saw we had a little bit more rights I still had press arrested out in Portland after this. Um, we were still getting strobe. The tactics changed. The intimidation changed. 
you know, it's just ebb and flow. And there's not just things going down on the streets. There's things going down in the judicial system. There's things going down systematically. I mean, it's there's different fights in all of these systems that are currently going on. Yeah. Were you there that night that Ted Wheeler, the uh, mayor of Portland, I think, came out to speak to the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was very... I don't think he knew what he was getting himself into. Well, I knew he, I know he didn't because he didn't show up in the proper gassing material. Gear. So he went there and he positioned himself in a very tight corner, which was probably his first problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, tried to have a conversation with the community. The community basically shut him down. And, you know, he was saying he wanted the feds out and the feds feds this. But then the community had pointed out that he's also not only the mayor, he's the police commissioner out there okay oh yeah um, yeah he was having they were saying you know everything that you're saying that the feds are doing you had your police doing to us 30 days ago you oh, know years ago yeah, like, yeah even even that yeah so yeah. it was a very intense situation um he then tried to leave at some point and demonstrators cornered him in closer so to the justice center mm-hmm. and to the point where him and his security could not moved they cornered him until the feds gassed. The feds actually gassed the mayor of Portland. They stood there until one of their security members started to throw up. The whole, they just weren't prepared. And then they finally started pushing people out of the way to get out of the gas. Um, and then, you know, tried to make it. But yeah, we actually released a whole video on that. Yeah. If you guys want to go see it, um, uh, one of our right? impact team members um, was right there the whole time following him around and just caught everything that happened. But it was a very, very intense, intense moment. I mean, the federal agents gassed a mayor, a the mayor. mayor of Portland. I think that's also a big deal. That's huge. It's such a police state. Like politicians have no power against the police. It seems like in, in every one of these cities, mm. it's wild. Don't even think about like private citizens, but like the the representatives, you know, like elected to office have no power, you know, and like this is true in New York even. Yeah, I think that New York this sometime this week, they go into a mandate where police officers no longer have to um, identify themselves. There's like an, um, yeah, Mm -hmm. New York starts dealing with that this week, I believe. And that's not even the federal agents. Those are local police officers on the ground in the communities not having to identify themselves no longer. It's very apparent to, you know, like you're seeing it on the ground, just like how steep the slide into fascism is and how quickly everything is moving. I don't know. It seems like there's there's like two countries now, one where like people are just like completely oblivious or don't care. And the other where this shit is happening daily, you know, like daily drills, daily like infringement of rights and like uh, destroying of civil liberties. The way that you've seen people rise up from what everything that you've seen for the both of you, like seeing protesters rise up, like there is hope still for us to resist the state fascism, right? Well, I think just from everything that we've seen, and one of the reasons why we wanted to venture out of Sacramento was to show that there is hope, there is resilience, to show the actual narrative of what's going on in the street. Because what is apparent as these aren't new issues, 
these aren't new things. This oppression has been going on for some for some people for the African American community four hundred plus years. For Indigenous folks, thousands of years. For you know, if everybody is connected in these issues. These this is liberation for everyone. So it's while every community is sh- having their own struggle, having their own thing. It, I think it was important for us to show to go out and show that even though it may look a little different, it's the same. Even though it may look a little hazy and washy, there there is hope. There are things that are changing. There is so much movement. While there is a lot of back into the fascism parts of things, there are some some great movements happening. There are some some movements. There have been some defundment of police. There have been new laws that have come into effect. There have been new cultural mind shifts. Um, there have been new generations and new forms of people out in the streets that we, people have never seen before. Um, so there are a lot of different sh- shifts happening on all sides and in, in all places and in all systems. And um, I think that was why we were so steady on getting on the front lines to a lot of these different places to just show it's going on around the world. And, you know, maybe we just really need to unify <laughs> that's what everyone's just trying to say is just unify agreed amplify and just figure out once and for all how we're going to move forward because i think the pandemic itself let us know that we are now having to make a new world you know yeah because it seems like all of the infrastructure like not just in this country but all over the world is falling apart with the infrastructure failing like it you know the state doesn't want people to see that or recognize that. So they'll do anything and everything as you have seen out in the street to continue keeping folks blind and deaf and whatnot from what is going on. Distraction is failing on them and us. You mentioned earlier, like, and I totally didn't recognize this, but like you, the black zebra team has stepped out of the United States too. Can you talk a little bit about where you went recently that's outside of the U.S. to report? Yeah, so we actually have an impact team member in Paris. Um, They're actually a Sacramento native, um, but they're now in Paris. So we've been collaborating with them. We built the impact team to be able to set up different collaborators around the nation. And now we're international. Like I'm saying, it's just so many intersections of how everyone's experiencing the same issues, um, the same things going on in their community. And so what we really wanted to share and we really wanted to collaborate with this person in Paris is to just amplify the voices of, you know, within their community to show and document what's going on in their community and for just to expand people's lens of like, hey, this just isn't a problem here. It's going on all over the place. It really just is our mission to just document that and just show people what's going on. The I think it was the yellow jackets that like have been protesting and, and fighting. Um, yeah, the yellow vests have been in this uprising and their revolution for, for years now. And they're just really fighting. There's unions. They're fighting for rights. They're fighting for police brutality. They're fighting for black lives. There's so many just different intersections where everyone's liberation connects. And like the the movements, like I think that like the essence of the movements, like is what like we as organizers and activists and just even like community folk, right? 
should focus on it's the essence, right? Not the name itself, because names of like movements change all the time. They often get co-opted by corporations and whatnot. I mean, like Black Lives Matter now, right? How many organizations and corporations are like really capitalizing on that hashtag, right? But like the essence itself and those movements are really they're really bottled, like they're coming up to the surface more and more each day of 2020 with this mess. We've been, you know, tackling some pretty hard um, community, some would say controversial issues since our conception. I mean, we could say on the when we're on the front lines, it's from blocking our views from what making arrests, having strobe lights in our eyes, shooting us, um, trying to incapacitate our legs, our ankles. In Portland, there's this weird thing where different press are getting rocks thrown into their windows. And the only thing that's getting taken out is gear, like protective gear. Like our gear got stolen and our wallet got stolen. Someone broke into our car with the rock and it, we just have so many different countless reporters that are reporting the same incident happen that it's, you know, so ju- just different things like that, that makes you make you feel a little crazy, right? make you want to have to check your back and have that security. But it just also shows you why, why you're out there. It shows you that there's a need to be out there because if you weren't out there, because could you imagine what could be going on? Yeah, we couldn't imagine. Like, yeah, you know, a lot of people don't imagine, and a lot of people can't imagine what is going on because of the the narrative or the frame that they get is those little snippets, right? That like, what is it, the thirty second snippets that they see on like the local news or whatnot? Y'all are like documenting the entire night, not the entire night, but like most of the night of the action, right? And so people are seeing from just like a a small vantage point, but even then that small vantage point is telling so much about what is happening, like with the boots on the ground. Definitely. I definitely think it offers like that just offers another lens into it because because I'm an editor and there have been points where I do need to go to a three, four hour event and condense it down to a minute. And that is a very a task that not to be taken lightly because in a way you're making history. You're cutting up history and fitting it into this little 30, 45 minute, 30 minute clip. And that there's so much responsibility there. There's so much in that action. Um, it's crazy. So we, that's what I'm saying. We're really trying to just be present. Like that's mostly what the job is. We're just trying to be present with our cameras. We're trying to bring our audience to be present as well with our cameras. Can you talk a little bit about how big your audience is right now on social media? We go by our engagements or like our statistics. And I think our last round of it or just Facebook alone was about 3 million. Um, so we're hitting about 2 million to 3 million. Um, 3 million now. Three point, yeah, 3 million um, per month. Yes. Wow. And then Instagram, we have like. 14, yeah, and that was just for Facebook. Um, 14,000 so yeah, followers. It's still about like that 3 million number. I think Facebook's the biggest one. Yeah, exactly. How, how has the um, reaction been? It's been a lot. It's been across the board. Across the board, from yeah. the, the most supportive to the biggest fan. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of support, a lot of love. 
a lot of appreciation. We also have like a lot of hate. A lot of hate. <laughs> a lot. That of comes hate. with it, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you gotta, I guess, it comes yeah, with you it. Gotta take both. I recently started getting death threats. Yeah, that that happens when you're trying to expose or like bring some truth to this political climate. Yep. Yeah, I don't want to just put it off um, by itself, but I, I guess it does come with the territory. It does. And we've been experiencing trying to be shut up shut down uh for a minute i mean we're also impacted voices where you know we're also among some of the most i mean black women in america one of the most impacted um groups here mm-hmm. I, it's nothing that's nothing is new no nope. so we've been through this we yeah, <laughs> i guess maybe masters of it and we're just it just goes to show why we have to just keep persevering why we have to just keep going right and i think thanks to i mean from in my end like it's thanks to like me being filipino and coming over here and experiencing racism and discrimination from the very beginning it kind of gave me that thick skin to navigate and figure out how to navigate all the people that are sending hate message to the threat we're really not doing anything other than just document what's going on in the Mm -hmm. history and the fact that history can always like the history books are always not putting a lot of information that we need that's happening in in this country from the past you know i want to make a difference on that and just say like yo this is what's happening in this presence now it is part of the history yeah. of 2020. You can go back. And now you, you can't can go back. That. Yeah, you, you can't rewrite it. You can't tell it is different part of the history. It's right there for you to look at and see for yourself. And you have no choice but to create your own conclusion on what happened on that. Nobody else will create that narrative for you. Can I can I go back to um the like the unbiased approach that mm-hmm. you guys use? Is is that, you know, like something that you guys developed over the last four years or something that you started out with, like saying this is how we want to do things and um, here's why? Yeah, I mean, it's always just... See, we didn't ever come at it as journalists. No. <laughs> that's a very new title for us. Yeah, that's super new. Yeah, so it really just... We just wanted to use this art to amplify the voices and the shared experiences that were going on, not only in our community, because we we've been traveling around the world doing mm-hmm. this work. It really was just that. It really just was, this is what's going on. Here it is in video. Boom. Yeah, and, but, and we also... You know, we we see the news and we've watched news in our experiences. And there are moments in our life when we're going through this journey where the news would be saying this. But in the present time, when we're there to get when we're both there together, it's a different story. Yeah, we're sometimes dumbfounded to because we're, we're we're now in the same boat as the press and the mainstream media that's out there where we sometimes are walking besides them. And to just be walking beside someone the whole time and to be seeing the same things and be doing the same things, recording the same things. And then we go back and see like the narrative that they have put out. Mm -hmm. We are sometimes dumbfounded and shocked and really shaken to our core because that is that then becomes a narrative in a lot of people's minds. But then from people being out there on on the the ground as well. We're Mm -hmm. like, how could you come to that conclusion? Like, why did you put it that way? How did you create that conclusion that you're going to run this story this way when in reality, this is really what happens? So, like, I feel like they're doing their subjective biased position 
And I guess the way that you're doing it is you're just like putting everything out there. But what other people might do is like, I'm going to put a different subjective spin on what's happening and make it you know, more bite-sized and easily memeable, you know, so that more people can see a different perspective. So I guess, um, what made you want to do this approach versus another, another more standard approach? I think the other is just isn't in our DNA. Yeah. It's just like, we're just not out there for that. We're, like, not, we're out just there. not, we're not out there for the same reasons as them. They we're are. really just out there trying to amplify the voices in our community. Like, Seriously. And you just can't do that by cutting up people's voices. It just, I think it, it's just our mindset and why we continue to wake up and do this work every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's how we've been living every day and how we're part of the community and, you know, without the lenses, without the black zebra, where we go out there, we pretty much want to see exactly what's happening and be presence of, you know, what's what's happening in the streets and the being having the black zebra and having all this technology, it just complements on, you know, exactly what we see. The stories that you want to tell or the, the perspective that you want, you're bringing and the, the lens that you're bringing to the people, like your audience, right? Um, the media, like, they will spin that story. They will uplift certain stories, right? Like, I remember, and I'm just going to plug this in there because I'm so proud of the work that we've been doing, but also the work that you did to help us, right? Was the um, the action, the, the, the roses, at, the flower action. Yes. yes. Uh, for uh, California's bill, AB 2218, the transgender wellness and the health and equity bill. Mm -hmm. Like you were there that day to document the entire process. Um, We were there for like a couple of hours, right? Trying to bring attention to uh, Governor Gavin Newsom to sign the bill. Mm -hmm. And there were other mainstream media folks that came there, like four of them uh, through the day. Only one reported on other than yours. Mm-hmm. Only one reported on them. And I checked all the, the other stories that they reported on that day. It was like so random. Like it just, it was not even like newsworthy. Kid gets so-and-so. Door is possibly closing. What's going to happen to your pickles? You know, like th- that type of story. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, so, um, the story, like you are bringing like real people's like movements and needs to the forefront of the conversation. And like, I must commend you for that work. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this sort of thing was the area of investigative journalism from, you know, like the heyday of progressive journalism, you know, like in the sixties and seventies. And now like mainstream media has just been completely co-opted by the right. And so like you are doing journalism. It's just that what is now journalism is just propaganda. So like, (laughs) you know, like it's, it's good. It's good that we live in uh, the age of social media and communal access to the internet that you are able to do this. Um, And I think it's actually like channel, like media channels like yours that the government is actually trying to shut down with restrictions on social media and uh, the internet. Yeah, definitely. We've experienced so many, like 
we're not able to monetize our content like other contents are able content makers are able to do so that makes us have to be able to find other ways to sustain this work mm-hmm. we've been shut down by facebook yeah why were you shut down by facebook and what what did you post <laughs> We still don't know. We've actually um, had a couple of meetings with some high-level people in Facebook, um, as well as our ACLU attorneys, to ask these questions. And they have not given us a clear answer um, as of yet, unfortunately. No, it was super scary. Um, So one of the interesting things that had happened, the day before our page got taken down, we had posted two videos. We had posted one video of a um, California Highway Patrol um, putting a knee on the neck while they are arresting a protester. And that obviously blew up like wildfire. And then we had also re-screened um, our documentary on the Stockton Boulevard, so the Sacramento um, Eviction. evictions of like hundreds of people of Stockton Boulevard of this unhoused encampment that had been there for like 10 to 15 years. So we had screened some pretty um, intense videos, and the next day we woke up to our page being completely gone. Um, and it had said that there, I don't even know, there was just like, it the content has been removed and it was on our, our entire page. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was very scary. <laughs> we literally did not know what to do yeah, at all. I was, I stayed up all night because I think we were, there was a uh, event or I, we were live streaming an event on that night. And then I, we went back to our place and then I was, you know, working up until like four in the morning, you know, just checking uh, doing stuff and then she woke up like around eight or nine and then yeah, that's 10 o'clock, or 10 o'clock yeah. and that's when it happened and so it happened in the morning be- between me sleeping and her waking up and from there just firestorm and everybody start you know the community started like <laughs> the community started contacting like everybody yeah, got- we had Congresswoman Doris Maxui, we had Jerry Brown's office, we had ACLU, the Sacramento Bee, Cap Radio. Um, we had people reaching out to their contacts within Facebook. The, our whole community, uh, community members we didn't even know had supported us, had mobilized in trying to figure out what happened and to be able to get that content back within a couple of hours before our ACLU attorneys were even able to send an email to Facebook. The page was back up. Exactly. And then within 10 minutes of our attorneys sending that email um, to Facebook, they had sent an email back to us saying that they would take a meeting. And we had a couple of meetings where we were adamant about wanting to know exactly what happened. um, So I could just make sure that, you know, what happened and can make sure this doesn't happen in the future. Unfortunately, as of today, those answers still haven't been given to us. Um, unfortunately, as of today, we still haven't seen our demands met, um, the demands of wanting to know what happened, taking accountability, Facebook taking accountability, going into their policies, going into their system, seeing how it's affecting people of color, people that are impacted, people that they are serving. And a lot of those things have not been done. Um, so it, it is something that we're ongoing with the ACLU yep. and um, yeah, developing. Yeah. Do you have your own website? Yes, we do have our own website and we did raise donations to be able to go and integrate onto different platforms. And we have done that and we do have, Mm -hmm. we have something backing up. Yeah, because that's that's happened to us. Like we were on Medium and one day 
it was just like, oh, all your content is gone. So it's like really important to own your own platform, especially as a POC creator. No, you're definitely right. You're definitely right. And one of the things that I was seeing as I was traveling around the nation was we weren't the only one who had the story. We weren't the only one who had the story that were person of colors. We weren't the only person who had the story that were following the same stories or similar paths that we were following. Um, We were seeing a, a whole systematic thing going on that was not just affecting us personally, but affecting people that look like us and that were doing similar work as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is like, these are systemic issues. And um, it definitely started before Trump, but it's like getting way, way more intense now. So yeah, like I said, we've been around since 2016. We've been covering a vast majority of issues. Um, One of the issues that's really close to my heart are issues around our unhousing community, Um, especially here in Sacramento, um, just the way that I've been here all my life the things and the patterns that I've seen, the way they are treated, really shocking and just really just hurtful. And so we've been really trying to show a light, um, trying to give voices. We've been going into the encampments for about like two years now, getting to know the different um, residents within the different encampments across Sacramento, because there are many of them, and just building relationships with everyone, bringing our camera in when able so we could lift their voices up and really show what's going on and the the shared experiences that they're going through. And so we just really wanted to have people not only just look into, you know, the uprising movement that's going on, but also the unhoused issue that's going on. That's been going on. Yeah. And the housing issues. We tackle housing issues. We tackle all types of issues within the community. Um, We've been collaborating with different groups to try to amplify other diverse groups as well. So we're just mm-hmm. really a labor of love, really a collaboration and a connection and really just us stepping out of the way and just being vessels of our community to try to figure out a way of changing things and showing people what's really going on. And valuing human lives. Can I go back to the unbiased frame with which you're doing all of this. So our team, we've kind of been talking a lot about how the Asian person in America, we have a unique position in that we're kind of on the margins, like on the outside of a lot of issues, you know, or just like our positionality is like kind of an external one, but that lends to itself an objectivity that like other identities in America don't have. So I guess when you say that your your position, it's like in your DNA to to be reporting and uh, documenting in the way that you have, do you feel like that is related to your identity as an Asian person in America or no? I think so, definitely. I think so. I think not only as an Asian woman, but a Black woman as well, and just have seen my people be impacted by media the the distrust in those relationships and how they come into our communities and we're not feeling like they tell the accurate story or we're not feeling like what we're saying is being heard or actually illustrated correctly. So it really just came from my, like our own experience of that discrimination of that systematic oppression of that systematic racism of that's all those systematic things that are just blowing past that and just being genuine people and just, it's like yeah. you, you just it's like an inherent thing. For me, it's weird. It would be weird to show up 
and stand in front of a camera and try to ask people questions to get them to say a certain thing. It would be weird trying to go somewhere and try to incite people to get a certain thing on camera. Mm -hmm. It would be weird to have to cut up someone giving a heartfelt message and to, to have to figure out which parts of that I should cut up and which parts of those belong. Like that stresses me out. <laughs> like, who am I to decide that? Who am I to decide that for history and then for everyone else to then use that in their brains and go into the world with that? Like, mm -hmm. I think that is just a, a huge responsibility and like something that should not be taken lightly. And that's why we really just try to come at it as we are yeah, yeah just go out there and shut up and put your camera on yep and then for me in my experience um i think learning history about you know the united states when i was in the philippines it showed a lot because they only talk about you know white person and just having that propaganda of just a lot of light skin or white skin and coming into america and seeing the reality of it and having that objective feeling like I'm a third person and I'm seeing what's happening in front of me, yet the book is telling me something different. The history didn't tell me about slavery. You didn't tell me about, you know, the indigenous and what's happening and how it started in America. And that right there already showed me like, okay, that's a red flag. And then, you know, experiencing racism and discrimination for being an immigrant in being in a different country and born in a different country also is another red flag and seeing that in front of my face but the people are just reacting like it's a normal thing is a red flag um, and so I guess I incorporated all that experience and trauma into like the work that we do right now so that we can ensure to let everybody know that this is what's happening and this is the real deal if there's any racism or discrimination, anything that is wrong that that we see based on our morals and values, we're going to go ahead and take accountability for that. Yeah. I mean, I, do, I think it's really cool because, you know, throughout history, like the white lens has been universalized as the objective, unbiased perspective. And so when a person of color even suggests their own subjectivity it is really easy to discredit their position but because you have just what is there you know that's like that's the power of i mean i guess it's like your your self-effacement mm -hmm. in a sense is kind of what empowers you and so you're kind of turning you're turning the tables on concepts of like um, white objectivity. Yes, I agree. And um, I think living in the Philippines and seeing these propagandas of this white and how the American is, I feel like a majority of Filipinos and Asians, um, their goal, they want to have that same goal as like the, the success of every white Americans where they have everything they have. The proximity the house. to whiteness. Yeah. So they like, that's the goal. And I think the Asian Americans want to have the same exact, you know, opportunity. They want to be in that same thing. And so they would rather preach, like they want to do whatever it can to make sure they get to that position. That's one thing that I experienced myself and I understood, you know, that pathway and I made my decision in my own way that, no, I'm going to turn the table. I'm going to make sure that, you know, that's not where I'm going to go to because 
that's not really like what suits me in my life. And that's, I think, how I like that's how I created my values and who I am as, as, as of right now. Seems like you did a lot of decolonization and that's really awesome. But like, that's, that's kind of one of the things that we're trying to get to that point of because there's like so many Asians who are like, um, we call them boba liberals, you know, like they just kind of like centrist. They don't really, they're like apolitical, kind of materialistic and vapid. And, um, we kind of want to get the people who are, kind of having their political awakening to, you know, be like be radicalized mm. more, you know, because like a lot of them are coming from that positionality of, oh, like we can be white adjacent. So let's, let's just stay yeah. here. Right. Or they're trying to chase it in different ways too. It's like sometimes people will have the political awareness, but then not be able to step out of their white collar job, even though they hate it. You know, whatever it is, it's just like, it just seems like so hard to actually decolonize your actions, even if you have those political inclinations already. So do you have any advice for people who are kind of on that fence right now? (laughs) I think for me, it would be about educating yourself, maybe why things are. I think this isn't the only example, but I think a big example is... You know, a lot of people are like first generation Asian Americans and they have parents who are very traditional to the ways things were done and wherever they're from. For like, for for example, for Jeff's mom, Jeff's mom comes from a very humble background um, to where they had nothing. They didn't even have electricity. And the way that she found herself out of that was through a white man, you know, and that is kind of the same exchange that happens through a white man, through coming to the American dream and having that. And that is a pathway and maybe something that has worked in the past, but it's also coming to the fact and the realizations that there are other ways. And then just like Jeff said, coming here, like his mindset that he was given was this colonization was this white supremacy was the American dream, but coming here and actually educating yourself and having these experiences and having diverse. And for us, it took traveling around the world and seeing other people do it different ways that can open your mind to there are other ways of doing things out there. And then there's also a a path of there are systematic colonization, systematic white supremacy ways of doing things of independency of all like there's just so many different things that have to be tackled and it it can seem overwhelming and it can just be like you know what forget that i'm just gonna have my car my materialistic things because that is the much easier path right now Mm -hmm. you know that's the most done and the most easiest path but just really going within yourself and educating yourself on why maybe like that and educating yourself on the other options out there because there's like this false narrative of like scarcity and this false narrative of like limited resources and limited ways of doing things. But once you tap into that and you see that that is not true, that's when your world and your possibilities and that's when you really start living. That's when you're really able to make the decisions and really tap into yourself and see why you're here and get into that. And that's just for us the journey that we've been in yeah and for me um one one important thing one lesson or 
I can tell you is that stay rooted, stay like keep being grounded and keep your root to yourself. Like what I mean by that is, you know, I have to make sure I have to remember where I came from. I have to remember where my ancestors came from. And the fact that I like when I, I for example, I came here back in 2004 and I, I recognize now that I colonized myself to the point where I forgot how to speak my own language. I forgot to communicate back to the families that I have back in Philippines. I literally like became a person of who only speaks English, who only interacts with people here in America, who are trying to do the same exact thing, same behaviors, same personalities that everybody in this country was living. And, you know, I got to the point where it's almost too late for me to come back. It was so hard to decol- to cleanse myself back to balance it between adapting the environment here in the United States and keeping my roots back in, the, you know, in, in the Philippines or just, yeah. So I would say stay connected to like the people that supported you and find some people that are actually immigrants who are struggling the same way that you're struggling coming here um, from a different country because it's so easy to get colonized and it's so hard to find help and support and people that really relates to the struggle that you go through living in the United States every day. So, yeah. That's my main thing. Cool. Wait, so Jeff, are you also mixed? I'm sorry? Like, is your dad white? Uh, No, um, I have. It was my stepdad was white, um, but I'm straight Filipino. Well, actually, I'm (laughs) I just found out that I'm Filipino, Spanish, Chinese and German. But or an (laughs) German Chinese and Spanish invading the Philippines. Yeah. I think that's the interesting thing about like us being colonial subjects, right? That history keeps on rewriting itself for who is the current winner. And like we forget that like within our own lineage and bloodline, they have created those boxes and those borders around those identities. And so we all have that, the colonized and the colonizer within us in one way or another. And like part of that decolonization, it's a process for a lot of us, AAPI, Asian Americans, Asians, in living in the United States, right? Mm. It's so easy for many of us to fall into that liberal, boba liberal um, identity because so much of the media, and you know, to bring it back to what we were talking about, the media, right? Like that, they really love to push that assimilationist um, narrative to our community. And a lot of us eat it up because that's all that we think that exists out there that like, you work hard, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you work, you work hard, you make it in that way, right. And that is like striving for whiteness, or striving to, to get to the top. We never or don't understand how that really hurts our community in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's the scarcity mentality that Kay was talking about earlier that, 
it's the idea that there's only a certain amount of pie and there's only one narrow path that you can go to get a piece of that pie you know and it's just it's just not true like in i think in 2016 also like i was you know in a corporate job that paid well but i hated it and i was like so scared to quit i was so terrified because i was like oh what if i lose this thing and it means that i am valueless you know and like it took me so long to finally decide to quit and stuff and then after that i was like still so freaking scared of what i was gonna do and um after a few months like i just kind of started doing, you know, stuff to help my friends. And then I realized, oh, this is something, this is what I can do. And now I'm like working on projects with my friends that I really like that are actually like benefiting, you know, people of color communities and like the entire community in general. And it's like so much better. It makes me sad that there's people that stay in that like middle management corporate position their entire lives and they just can't see a way out. I feel that more than you know. I actually come from the legal world and I was in law school, a paralegal out of family law, working my way up, thought that corporate life was everything. And yeah, no, it it really for me, it was a what de what the step that decolonized me is I had a client take his life. And I'm told to either go home or get over it. And I was able to get over it and go back into work and just keep doing, you know, keep doing my mouse work. And I thought that I thought I was okay. And then every day after that, my body just, it just ate, ate me up. It ate me up that I could even just like keep moving. It ate me up that I had a, that I was able to just cut off my humanity. And I literally left that job. Like I was having panic attacks. It was just so bad. I, I just had to leave that job. And that's, how I started this. Um, it was wow. completely that it was like, I've, I know I can make a difference in the, the law field, but then like, what, what does that take out of you? And all my life, I, I thought for me, especially I'm from no North Highlands, California. So a black girl from North Highlands, California, getting into law school. Like I thought that was everything. I thought that mm -hmm. was the end of the world. <laughs> that was all I could do. And then when I got to that place, I was like, holy cow, there's like so much out into this world. There's so much more that you could do. There's so many pathways. That scarcity mindset started to shed once I started exposing myself and educating myself and just putting myself through like these different experiences. Mm -hmm. And then it was at the point where I couldn't do anything but quit my job. Yep. Like my body physically wouldn't allow me to do anything but quit my job and do this work yep. and so it, it really is it, it's sometimes it, you have it has to have like that experience that starts you on that path or that spark however it comes but it, it really is a journey yep as well as um you, you know your intuition and your instinct too and how how you decide um i think that was the most important thing and that's one thing that you know that deval like it, it doesn't val like your feelings doesn't value if you go into corporate jobs and so um, I think everybody doesn't really listen to themselves their intuition and I think that needs to be changed because you know you are in control of your own path and your own feelings and no one else is 
And I think everybody needs to have a little faith to themselves as far as like what makes them happy and as far as, you know, how they want to find themselves and where they want to go, you know, and how they want to live every day in this world. I think for me, like, I've tried to run away from that, being at the intersections of race, gender, and class. For, for one, being a, um, a Chinese-Vietnamese person, two, being a transgender woman, and three, yeah, being a woman, right? There has always been some form of, like, systemic violence that has been, like, inflicted upon me, and, like, it's, like, administrative. It's, like, communal, like, like through community, right? That that violence has happened to me. It's like all of these things that like I tried to run away from for a long, long time. And I try to be like Pollyanna about it. I hate that I had to use a white trope. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like I, I tried to run away from a lot of that. I really believed in the American dream. I really believed in pushing myself to my capacity and limits to be able to make it as far as I could and overlook all of the setbacks, all of the intersections of my identity had placed on me, right? And I didn't understand why I kept on being pushed down and knocked down. And then like, I began to read a lot more. I mean, I read when I was a kid, like in, you know, I read in high school and I read in college, but I read a lot of those Cinderella stories. You know what I'm saying? Like, and there are so, so much of those stories, like in media and film and books in our system and culture. So I read a lot of those. And then finally, I started to read more like nonfiction stuff. And I just began to educate myself. And I realized that like, the personal is political and I can't run away from that. Even when I'm running away from that, it still comes and strikes me. So the only thing I could do was fight back and it liberated me so much. Like I began to be more decolonized because of it. I surpassed my uh, imposter syndrome to high extremities where like I'm able to like do things and I'm more like present I'm more here than I have ever been. And that was because I recognized that we don't live in a vacuum where our, our identities do not affect us in any way, right? The system creates those identities so that way there is that scarcity so that people at the top, the 0.0001% has all of the resources. Yeah. I organize and I'm an activist because I want to be able to pull more people to recognize that like we are stronger together than we're really not. That was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, and you know like being Asian American, well being Asian in this country, right? Like um I was born in Vietnam and like a lot of those beliefs were really pushed on to me and my family. And I don't doubt my mom and and dad, like, especially my mom, you know, like uh, where she grew up, where the Americans were around and they pushed a lot of those like narratives, the white gaze on her dreams. Right. And so like, she came to this country for a reason and, and brought our family here for a reason. And to resist that, that has been the most liberating thing for me. Same. Yeah. And I feel like being API in this country, it's always that 
that binary, right? The black and white, uh, white versus black. And it creates that white supremacist structure through that binary and other peoples that fall in between the cracks. And that's a very wide crack are so erased and that that's what whiteness does. It erases us, pits us against our black siblings fighting for those scraps. And I'm not here for that. I don't think that it, it helps when we're punching down at our black siblings they lack so many resources, right? And white supremacy has totally used our Asian identity with its proximity to whiteness to really backstab so many other communities. The movements for civil rights and all of that stuff, like we're not really talked about very much in the, in the last few decades within that movement. And trans people were the organizers, the main movers and the shakers, the leaders, all of it. Yeah, a lot of, you know, trans people, like, they have been erased constantly since, like, in, transness is, like, a very indigenous identity, right? Like, maybe it wasn't called trans then, but it was, like, definitely, like, gender variance within many cultures. And you can still see this around the world that, like, it still blossoms in the midst of all, like, that kind of bulldozering over gender variance and gender variant people. Mm-hmm. Of all of the things that you've talked about, right, the struggle that you've had out in the streets reporting, I'm going to assume that this is very traumatizing. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. You know, especially when you're, we've been in that going, 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 just for us, it's really a big part of the job is being present and staying present and just seeing so much and putting ourselves on those front lines and a lot of those front lines were real life war zones. Um, we were having concussion grenades thrown right at mm-hmm. us. We were having gas and gas, gas, gas every night. So much gas. Um, I've had my menstrual cycles be affected by it. Different things um, from con- like the the banging, all of that. We have, and to now come back and have a second to be able to breathe and a second for you know that restorativeness. Yeah. And that rest, it really, it has caught up to us and we're realizing the triggers and we're realizing the PTSD and we're realizing um, different noises will set us off and mm-hmm. put us in back into the into front lines front in different line places. Zone mentality. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's definitely just been all hands on deck of just trying to find ways to cope find ways to process. I think processing has been like a really big thing um, because when you're going, 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 you have little time to process. And so now we're processing a lot. We're making still processing. Sure, we're having that self-care, um, reinforcing those mechanisms, um, going into our community and finding new ways of coping and healing and dealing. Just, you know, taking a step back and realizing like there's some work to be done in that and realizing we have put ourselves through a lot trying to find a balance how do you do that yeah are there any specific uh techniques that you guys use on a daily basis uh you go first yeah. you got your way i yeah. got my ways for me um you know i'm a very holistic and um spiritual intuitive type person um so you know i have like my sage crystals 
Um, I have meditation that I do, um, especially when I when I wake up. It's probably like the worst for me. It's when the most of my anxiety and stuff. That's why when I wake up, so I am having to like catch myself um, and do different meditation techniques. Um, also, my community. I've just been relying a lot on the people within my community and just being able to talk to them and share with them my trauma. And a lot of it, it is unfortunately shared trauma. Just being able to process it with them. You know, the community has also been gracious enough to hold healing spaces, not only for me, but my team as well. Different practices and spaces have been held for us to have that space and time to heal. It really just is like an everyday thing. And, you know, if our PTSD triggers don't remind us that we need to work on this consistently, it really just is like the tiredness and just the mindset and, you know, all of that. So I think we're definitely still figuring it out. Definitely, definitely still figuring it out. I mean, how no one's perfect. But those are the little things for me um, that I've been really grasping onto and really, you know, centering myself on to try to go through it. Cause it is, it's a process. You don't just, you know, actually it is one little thing that can traumatize you, but the process, you know, you'll never be normal again or what, whatever normal is you'll, you've been traumatized and just the process of coping with that and learning to live with that. That's just always an ongoing thing, especially mm-hmm. when we're continuously putting ourselves in these intense and traumatizing moments. Yeah. For me, it might sound weird, but <laughs> I do a lot of like organic in nature approach for me. Um, I've changed my diet to like oh, all yeah. vegetables. The food you eat is really important. It gave me more strength to be continuously like going through this. And also, you know, I'm a dancer and I usually uh, use that as the art form for me to like kind of express uh, how I feel in regards to like what's been happening, you know, in the streets, like all the traumas I've experienced. Music helps me a lot to uh, to help me with the process. It, you know, it helps me be creative and be vulnerable for the moment. And that way I can start figuring out how to heal. I sometimes would take off my shoes and my socks and I would go into the grass and I would just chill there for like five minutes. It it's helps me. A grounding technique. Especially yeah. if you travel a lot. It's a really good grounding technique. Yes, I do that quite often. It's It helps. It helps with your jet lag. So I want to tell you to do that if you guys get jet lag, if you guys are traveling in the future. That helps me ground it a lot, especially when things, you know, before we start going live, you know, we really don't know and it's unpredictable what's going to happen. So being grounded is very important. And yeah, right now I'm still processing it, trying to navigate it. I'm definitely talking to the community members that are like there and sharing experiences also helps a lot because you're not the only person that was traumatized or have seen like things that you've never seen before. Um, So it's great to talk and have a conversation and yeah, continue to heal. That's yeah. pretty much it. Yeah. I think another big way is the work itself. Um, oh yes, the, the, uh, and that's where the artistic part comes to it. And it's so because yeah, we we so also awesome. We don't just have the live streaming. We also have um, cameras. So like, we're, there's a whole team that's usually on the ground. So one person's live streaming, and the other person either has um, a camera, then taking pictures, 
or videotaping. And we then go back and we also produce documentaries. So you guys will be seeing like a lot of different small and series documentaries coming out. And that's where we're able to go in artistically Mm -hmm. and process what we've seen and put music, you know, so the music is important. The video is important. So the music is important because it helps us like feel validated and put music to the experiences that we're having. Mm -hmm. So the whole process of the video editing and producing, that's where the art comes from. It allows us to heal and process what in the world we saw (laughs) and captured in a way and then even more healing yes we now have a product that we can put into the world that has our feelings and has all this like pent up whatever we've been going through and it's about reality and then we get to throw that into the world and have people digest that with us all of those layers and all of those things are what's healing for us and like as an artist so jeff has his dance and he also has the video production video editing with me yep and for me it's the video production video editing it allows me to process what i'm seeing it allows me to put it out there to make sense of it or to not make sense of it (laughs) (laughs) don't make sense as we've spoken about it black zebra is just so much more than a, a, a company or any of the labels that people are trying to put on it, it really just is like our life. And it's a way, it is a coping um, mechanism for ourselves as well. Yeah. It's, it's art. That, I mean, that's at the end of it, it, art is that. Art isn't people's interpretation of the events and the experiences and the people and the systems and whatever you want to entitle it around you and you and internalizing that and producing something and putting it into the world. That was deep. That was beautiful. I mean, I totally agree with like, you know, the intentionality of putting something out there creatively as an artist. I'm not going to say that I'm a witch, but (laughs) (laughs) because that is such a like a Western standard of like, but I do think that like, there's some type of like magic involved when you were, it's like you're casting a spell as you're doing something And, and like the casting is movement work it's creation it's like melding things together you know what i mean like crafting things and you're putting that out there Mm. into the world so like it may not look like magic it may not look like a type of like ritualistic casting into the ether in this century in this time period but i i do i think that it equates to that and like i think that was very beautiful how you put that like you just bring it out there and that's a way of your own healing but also it does whatever it's going to do for the world as well yeah yeah oh man thank man, you yeah thank you wow that's an awesome perspective thank you for that oh you're welcome i'm not a witch so <laughs> <laughs> do you do interviews like this a lot we do not. We do not. We don't because we like to stay behind the camera. That's not what we're about. It's and nope. for me also. It's the complexity of if I were to come out more in front of the camera, the narrative would change. It would be less about my artwork and more about what I'm wearing and who I'm fighting with and who I'm dating and all yeah. this other stuff. No, that's not as we've unfortunately that. seen. And for me. It's not about me getting famous. It's not about people knowing. I want people to know the art. I want people to know about the voices that we put out. We've been very intentional about that. Um, But we then also 
feel that we have put ourselves in a lot of situations and we do have pertinent information and you know we also have thoughts and opinions about the things that we've been through so yep. it's been a tug and a pull of trying to you know walk those two lines well i mean thanks for coming on this podcast <laughs> like now i feel really special <laughs> yeah i was actually just gonna ask how you feel about sharing yourselves and you know your kind of subjective experiences because you guys are naturals at it <laughs> <laughs> thanks. thanks well see That's it's a little scary that. because we want our work to stay you know we want people to still be able to not have our like because we've shared our opinions and our assumptions and our beliefs and our art and i think it's important for us to acknowledge that we're doing that because mainstream media doesn't acknowledge that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but at the same time we are people this is us trying to show different experiences and voices in the world through our eyes so yeah, we're just trying to figure out what that looks like in our in our community and our audience and our supporters have been a blessing to allow us to figure this out and walk this line and make some mistakes and just be better molded into what the community needs. And it's not just us building this, it's the community and it's a flow, ebb and flow, and we're just trying to figure it out all together. Yep. Thank you so much for that, y'all. Can you share where our audience can find you? They could follow you and watch as, you know, Black Zebra reports on everything that's going to happen until now, like now until November or maybe after whatever that's going to look like. Yeah, no, I can definitely promise you we will be out there well after November. We've been here since 2016 and we'll be doing this work no matter what. You can definitely follow us on all things Black Zebra or that's social media at Black Zebra Pro, Black Zebra Productions. Um, our website is travel with blackzebra.com and on that you can go and support us by booking some video production or video editing services you can tap into our black zebra impact team um so many different cool things that you can do with that website but yeah anything black zebra you can tag on you definitely want to follow us on all the social medias because we release different content um depending on the the channel mm -hmm. um, and google yeah. us yeah, Black but the Zebra. best way to sh the best best way to support is to share the content and talk about it. Yep. Just talk about it. Talk about it with your neighbor, your parents, your family, your friends. Just talk about it, even if it's negative. We just want to start a conversation and just really show people what's going on, and to be able to have that truth and that that information out there for people to be able to judge themselves. And is communication. What we're really trying to do. Yes. Do you think that's going to help with fascism? Come, like, it, it, never mind. Forget it. I won't go there. <laughs> but um, yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we could definitely have that conversation all the time. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to have, chat with you a lot more about lots of things. No, for sure. This is only the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, we don't like to do this very often. No, <laughs> this has been not. amazing, and we've been really honored yes. to do this with you guys. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, thank you so much.
All right. That's it for us today. Thanks for listening to another episode of Escape from Plan A, where your co-hosts, Nia and Diana. And uh, we have you have a great night. Please rate us on Spotify, SoundCloud, anywhere there's podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.